Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. No power frequency. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. How do we begin to approach some clear understanding of the tragic events that continue to unfold in Palestine and Israel? How do we get beyond the mainstream media spins? Joining us today to share his perspectives on the background, context, and broader dimensions of Hamas's October 7th attacks within Israel and Israel's ongoing military offensive against the Gaza Strip is Muin Rabani, <clears throat> a longtime commentator on Palestinian affairs, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in contemporary Middle East. Rabani formerly was a senior analyst of the Middle East and special advisor on Israel-Palestine with the International Crisis Group. He also served as head of political affairs with the Office of the United Nations Special Envoy for Syria. He currently is co-editor of the independent e-zine Jadalia, produced by the Arab Studies Institute. Welcome, Muin Rabani. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you, and thank you for having me. Uh, Muin Rabani, in your piece appearing on the Jadalia website on October 8th, a piece entitled Operation Al-Aqsa Storm, How, Why, and Where To, you immediately raised some key questions regarding the Hamas operation into Israel begun the day prior on October 7th. What, in your estimation, were Al-Aqsa Storm's immediate objectives, military and political? Um, thank you. I should point out that um, I wrote that article pretty much the same day that this entire crisis uh, started. So it was a um, uh, tentative and immediate assessment. Um, looking at it now with the benefit of some hindsight, um, there are basic judgments that um, I wouldn't change. And that is that um, a key objective for Hamas was to shatter what had become an untenable uh, status quo for them in terms of um, a 17-year uh, blockade, um, a very suffocating uh, blockade, not only for the movement, um, because it formed the government in Gaza, but also for the population at large. It was in part a um, uh, response to growing Israeli incursions into the Al-Aqsa Mosque in uh, Jerusalem and increasingly radical activities by the Israeli government and settlers in the West Bank. And I think um, perhaps the broader context is um, they had over the past decade seen a succession of Israeli governments begin to act increasingly unilaterally to, to try to resolve the core issues um, separating Israel from the Palestinians um, to the exclusive benefit of an Israeli agenda. I think that's maybe the broader contextual background in terms of their immediate objective, um, as I mentioned, it was um, to seek to shatter the status quo where previous attempts by Hamas to do so had failed. It was to seize um, a number of Israeli soldiers and officers uh, from within Israel in order to force Israel into a comprehensive um, uh, prisoner exchange. And my sense is that they hadn't really thought very much beyond that in terms of any, let's say, larger um, strategic objectives. And I, just as a last point, I would add um, that when Hamas uh, did um, enter Israel on October 7th, um, the Israeli military collapsed like a house of cards. And therefore, um, the scale and scope and size of the attacks ended up being very much larger than I think even um, Hamas had anticipated. And there's an open question as to whether 
um, Hamas um, expected or intended to deal as severe a blow to Israel, not only to the Israeli army, but also to Israeli population centers and civilians, as we saw happening on the 7th of October. Talk about the years, year long, years long ongoing situation in Gaza. You touched on it, uh, but it kind of disappears. Suddenly there's no, there's nothing before October 7th. Talk about what, what that has meant. Uh, imposed by Israel, of course. The conditions. Oh. Uh, hold on. Uh, I'm sorry. I I raise this question because one of the things that's been going on is that suddenly there's this siege of Gaza. Mm-hmm. Right. Suddenly, uh, but there's no mention, really, or very rarely mention of the fact that it's gone on at some levels for what 17 years since the rise of Hamas. Well, let me start um, by going perhaps a bit further back, is that many news reports these days often refer to the Gaza Strip as one of the most densely populated uh, territories in the planet. And the reason that's the case is because over 75% of the population of Gaza consists of refugees who have been either forcibly expelled um, from their homes Uh, during the creation of uh, Israel in 1947-1948 or had fled to the Gaza Strip seeking refuge and have since not been permitted to return to their homes. Secondly, in 1967, um, Israel um, uh, occupied uh, the Gaza Strip uh, in the context of uh, the Six-Day War and um, uh, after that made very clear that it had no intention of leaving the Gaza Strip and effectively considered it to be under permanent Israeli control. And throughout um, uh, the 1970s and 1980s, we see Israel establishing a whole series of civilian colonies, um, population centers within the Gaza Strip with the purpose of permanently um, retaining control of the Gaza Strip. That began to change during the 1990s and particularly in the early 2000s with the eruption of the second Palestinian Intifada, um, which included a growing number of armed attacks against Israeli soldiers and uh, settlers within the Gaza Strip. And in this context, uh, the Israeli prime minister at the time, Ariel Sharon, um, undertook what he termed a unilateral redeployment Uh, from the Gaza Strip. Now, what that meant was that Israel um, chose to um, remove its physical presence, its military and settlement presence from within the Gaza Strip and deliberately doing so without any agreement with um, the Palestinian leadership in in Ramallah, the Palestinian Authority. And um, uh, once it did so, it began really turning the screws on the Gaza Strip in terms of um, limiting its access to the outside world. So although Israel no longer had a physical presence within the Gaza Strip, it was still an occupied territory in the sense that Israel controlled the borders, the airspace, the coastline, the electromagnetic sphere, um, uh, and so on. And then in... 2006, um, when uh, Hamas contested Palestinian elections and won those elections and formed the government, and particularly in 2007, when Hamas's military forces seized power within the Gaza Strip in the context of a conflict with the Palestinian leadership in Ramallah, Israel imposed, um, along with Egypt, I should add, which controls the other land border into the Gaza Strip, imposed a blockade of um, uh, the Gaza Strip in which it strictly controlled anything that can enter or leave the Gaza Strip. And so in the past, we've had examples where they have banned the entry of pasta um, on the grounds that it's a dual-use weapon. Um, We've had Israeli um, uh, military analysts calculating the number of calories Um, that Palestinian residents of the Gaza Strip would need to consume every day um, to um, basically be at the minimum level of of nutrition without starving to death. 
Um, and and more broadly, I mean, I think you know we have had this blockade, very a, a very strict blockade, in, um, uh, imposed on the Gaza Strip now for I think um, uh, almost seventeen years, uh, with varying levels of Egyptian cooperation. The last decade, with with very firm Egyptian um, uh, participation, and during this period, we've also had a number of um, Israeli military offensives against uh, the Gaza Strip. The first large one was in 2006 when um, uh, Hamas uh, militants uh, successfully captured an Israeli soldier stationed on the boundary of the Gaza Strip. Then there was a, a much more severe one in 2008, 2009, another in 2012, 2014, um, and most recently before this one in, um, uh, in 2021. So um, the sum of all these factors is that the Gaza Strip is a highly overpopulated, severely impoverished, and deprived um, territory whose 2.3 million residents um, live in what the former British Conservative Prime Minister David Cameron termed the world's largest open-air prison. They're effectively encaged um, uh, within uh, this uh, prison um, and have been thoroughly, over the years, um, delegitimized, uh, dehumanized, impoverished, and the rest of it. And this, I think, is important context to understand what we're um, experiencing and witnessing in October, uh, November of this year. You're listening to Muin Rabani, analyst, commentator on Palestinian affairs, Palestine, Israel, the broader Middle East, with Jadalia, co-editor of the Ezin Co uh, Jadalia. Muin Rabani, in addition to the horrific conditions on the ground in Gaza, past and certainly present. The shifting situation in the broader region appears to have informed the Hamas leadership's decision to launch its attack. Let's let's start with the possible normalization of Israel-Saudi relations. There there are some who have discussed the Hamas offensive as an attempt to sabotage any agreement between the two or sabotage what you term the Saudi-American-Israeli agreement. What might such a rapprochement mean for the Palestinians? Well, I, I would place this in the context of a whole series of Arab-Israeli normalization agreements that we've seen um, since the most important one, which was um, the Egyptian-Israeli Peace Treaty of 1979. And in each of these um, agreements, uh, what we've seen is what when they're initially consummated, they're presented as initiatives that would um, make the prospect, that would bring closer the prospect of Israeli-Palestinian peace and a broader regional peace. But in fact, what happens is that each of these agreements is used to um, marginalize the Palestinian question further um, and and to um, consolidate Israeli con Israeli control over the West Bank and the Gaza Strip um, yet further. So I think this general background where Palestinians felt increasingly marginalized by those who they view as their most natural allies um, uh, did play a kind of background uh, role in what we've seen. With specific reference to a Saudi-Israeli, or um, uh, as, as discussed, a Saudi-American-Israeli normalization agreement, I have to say that I'm quite skeptical about the role that that would have played for a number of reasons. First of all, I think it's legitimate to ask whether such an agreement was even possible, because a core component of any such agreement would be formal U.S. security guarantees to Saudi Arabia and a U.S. commitment to provide Saudi Arabia um, with the capacity to um, enrich uranium and, um, with a civilian nuclear reactor. Now, both of these uh, initiatives would have required congressional approval, and I think it's extremely doubtful that the U.S. Congress 
um, given um, the fairly widespread hostility uh, to the Saudi leadership within Congress, I think it's an open question whether that, whether those initiatives could have ever been endorsed by Congress. Secondly, any such agreement would have required a number of Israeli gestures towards the Palestinians, which even though I would argue um, they're largely cosmetic rather than substantive in nature, given the extremism of the current Israeli government, um, could not have been adopted uh, uh, by that government. And last but by no means least, um, there is no evidence um, from the historical record of the past several decades that Israeli depredations against the Palestinians have either prevented or reversed um, normalization between Arab governments uh, and Israel. At most, they would have produced a decent interval if such an agreement was indeed um, uh, in the offing. And I think, um, you know, if I understand this, Hamas understands this, that, there, that if a Saudi-Israeli agreement um, was uh, genuinely imminent, that there is very little they could have done uh, to prevent it, and that the bloodbath we're seeing now would at most have um, postponed it by a few months. Cent central to that apparently still ongoing discussion between the Saudis and the Israelis uh, is the, the common enemy, that is uh, Iran. What do you say to those who suggest that, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that Hamas is acting as a surrogate for Iran? Well, that's, that supposition is based on Hamas um, being a member of uh, the so-called Axis of Resistance, um, which is a coalition of states and non-state actors in the Middle East, led by Iran, including Syria, the Houthi movement in Yemen, uh, most prominently Hezbollah in Lebanon, Islamic Jihad in Palestine, um, and uh, also various uh, militias in, uh, in Iraq and Syria. My response to that would be that if you look at this coalition, um, Hamas has always been its most reluctant member. It's effectively had one foot in this coalition and one foot outside it. Um, in 2011-2012, when this coalition faced its most serious and arguably existential challenge, which was um, the conflict in Syria and the very real prospect that the Syrian government would be overthrown uh, by the armed opposition in that country. Um, unlike other members of this coalition, Hamas did not stand by the government in Syria and fight alongside it, but rather it broke with the government in Syria and relocated its leadership, which was at the time based in Damascus, to uh, Qatar. Um, and this resulted, in fact, in a rupture of relations for a number of years between Hamas and um, uh, between Iran. And this is a relationship that only in recent years um, has, has been uh, repaired. Now, it's quite clear that Hamas um, gets substantial uh, support in various forms from, um, uh, from Iran, from Hezbollah, and from other members of this coalition since uh, the relationship was uh, repaired. But Hamas also has strategic relations um, with those who were not aligned uh, with Iran, which is quite different than some, than some of the other members of the coalition. And, and I know that there have been news reports in, um, for example, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times suggesting that the October 7th uh, attacks were very closely um, uh, coordinated with, if not led by, uh, or if not conducted at the behest of Iran and Hezbollah. I've seen absolutely no evidence for that. Um, more to the point, I, I, you know, Hamas acts primarily on the basis of Palestinian context, um, Palestinian priorities, and Palestinian interests. And I've seen no evidence that this was coordinated with Iran and Hezbollah. And I've seen quite a bit of evidence um, that Tehran and uh, Hezbollah were in fact taken by surprise um, by uh, 
by by what happened. And one could even argue to a certain extent unpleasantly surprised because of um, the timing and, and, and nature uh, of these attacks and their inability to properly prepare for them. Muin Rabani, you wrote that it, it was inconceivable that Hamas would have embarked on an operation of such scale that it did without also preparing for an unprecedented Israeli uh, response. In a recent Al Jazeera English interview, you noted that the Gaza Strip is the most intensely surveilled territory on earth. That raises the question of how uh, Hamas and to some extent Islamic Jihad were able to successfully plan and execute their operation. you have any insights to share with our listeners? Yes, um, but I should preface my remarks by saying um, that any insights I have are primarily speculative. Um, uh, first of all, I think if we um, look at recent history, um, I mentioned that in 2006, um, Hamas um, successfully captured an Israeli soldier on the boundary um, uh, between Israel and the Gaza Strip. Um, and as a result of that, there was a Israeli air campaign against the Gaza Strip lasting several weeks. Then um, uh, a month later, Hezbollah in Lebanon killed eight Israeli soldiers and seized two others. And we had a full-scale Israeli war on Lebanon lasting um, uh, 34 days. So against this background, it is to me inconceivable that even if Hamas had much more modest ambitions on October 7th, that they would not have um, predicted and prepared for a Israeli response that would have been unprecedented compared to what we saw in, in 2006 in either the Gaza Strip or, um, uh, or in Lebanon. Now, with respect to um, the other half of your question, um, uh, you know, the, the Israeli surveillance regime over the Gaza Strip is probably the most intense surveillance regime on the planet. I suspect it's much more intense than anything we've seen in China or um, uh, any of these other countries because you know it's a it's a very small territory, something like um, forty kilometer or forty two kilometers long and only ten kilometers wide um, at its widest. Um, Israel is in total control of the electromagnetic space, of all digital communications, of all electronic communications. I mean, if you're in Gaza and you send a WhatsApp message or a Facebook post or a phone call, it basically reaches Israeli intelligence before it reaches its intended um, uh, recipient. Um, there are drones that have coverage over the entire Gaza Strip 24-7. Uh, um, there are electric sensors attached to automated um, machine guns all around uh, the boundary that engages uh, the Gaza Strip. I mean, that's, and that's just for starters. So um, quite clearly, um, uh, Hamas understood this and reverted to, let's say, um, pre-digital forms of communication. Um, for perhaps um, the older members of your audience, they may uh, recall um, something called pen and paper. Um, probably um, uh, physical uh, meetings, um, probably an extremely high level of compartmentalization so that individuals involved in these attacks would have had only limited information about their role rather than the overall plan um, in case they were captured or in case um, uh, they were um, uh, you know, interrogated uh, or whatever. And also, I think there was uh, quite a bit of successful uh, concealment and subterfuge in terms of using those methods of communication that Hamas knew were being monitored um, to send, to provide Israeli intelligence with information to have them reach very different conclusions than that which actually transpired. Again, you're listening to Muin Rabani, commentator and analyst with Jadalia, Ezine, and other institutions. Um, 
The phone lines are open at 608-256-2001. If you want to join us with a question, a comment, an observation, again, 608-256-2001. Maureen, I'd like to shift focus to the U.S. response. Uh, on October 14th, in a piece called titled, U.S. and Europe Give Israel Free Hand in Gaza, you deconstructed Joe Biden's White House remarks that, that came four days prior. You noted that President Biden indicated that rather than giving Israel a free hand, he considers the United States a full and active partner in its systematic destruction of the Gaza Strip. You termed it an extraordinary speech, even by U.S. standards. How is that so? Well, um, this is uh, the Oval Office speech um, that uh, President Biden gave. I'm not sure of the date anymore. I think it was around the 11th of, of November. And in it, he, for all intents and October. purposes, sorry, October, my apologies. Um, in this address, he, in so many words, basically said, um, Israel's war is our war. We will give it anything and everything it needs to prosecute this war. Um, and we will place no restrictions whatsoever on how Israel decides to um, prosecute its war um, against the Gaza Strip. Now, he didn't do this on October 7th as an immediate response um, to the Hamas attacks on Israel. He did this several days later when it was already abundantly clear that Israel, as a matter of policy, would not make any distinction between the civilian population of the Gaza Strip on the one hand and the um, uh, uh, Palestinian fighters in the Gaza Strip on the other. It was already indisputable that Israel was targeting an entire society and an entire civilian infrastructure um, and committing war crimes and crimes against humanity on a systematic scale. And Biden in that speech effectively not only endorsed um, that campaign, but adopted it as Washington's own. And I think um, even by uh, the standards of um, systematic U.S. support for Israel, I found that um, extraordinary. Um, reading it uh, shortly thereafter, I was stunned a little bit by the, uh, well, the, the phrase that, that Biden used in saying that uh, that unlike Hamas, Israel upholds the laws of war. Um, it was quite a, quite an incredible speech. Yes, and and, and that, that indeed that was in the same speech. And I think the message here, because I'm, you know, we have to understand these aren't um, two completely independent factors we're discussing. Um, Israel is looking closely at the position the U.S. takes in determining how it proceeds with, this, with its onslaught in the Gaza Strip. And the U.S. is looking closely at what Israel is doing in order to determine um, uh, the U.S. position moving forward. So Israel was, in effect, in this speech, um, uh, given a license to kill, or the, a license to turn the Gaza Strip into uh, a killing field, because um, Biden said, we've seen what you're doing. Um, and regardless of what everyone else is saying, we consider what you're doing to be consistent with the rules of war and the laws of war. So um, the message, in effect, was escalate. Uh, you noted that in that piece that the unconditional U.S. support for Israel nevertheless masked an important development that has received insufficient attention. Um, go into that, the what you describe as the collapse in U.S. confidence in the Israeli political and military leadership? Yes. Um, well, uh, again, as, as I mentioned, um, on October 7th, um, the Israeli military collapsed like a house of cards. That's number one. Number two is the problem with Israeli intelligence on October 7th was not that they failed to heed the warnings they had been provided, but they literally had zero intelligence over about about what was about to hit them. Um, you know, Israel likes to use the term mowing the lawn 
about its periodic assaults on, on the Gaza Strip. Rather perverse um, turn of phrase, but that's the term they use. They had absolutely no idea that right under their very noses, in the most heavily surveyed territory on Earth, an entire rainforest uh, was being constructed while they were attending to uh, manicuring um, uh, the lawn. And um, what happened, I think, is, is the Biden administration already had very serious reservations about this particular Israeli government. Um, uh, and that the, the confidence in its ability to lead um, this close ally simply collapsed. In addition, um, through their engagement with the Israeli leadership, both political and military, um, they saw a leadership and a security establishment in total shock and disarray, incapable of formulating um, uh, meaningful plans or identifying um, uh, attainable objectives, um, whose sole agenda seemed to be revenge and ensuring that the Palestinian body count would be exponentially higher than the Israeli body count. And I think what we've seen in that context is um, uh, the U.S. playing a growing role in Israeli uh, decision-making to seek to make some order out of this chaos. Uh, Jack, our engineer, tells us that we do have a couple of callers waiting patiently to get on the air. Let's go to first to Steve. Hi, you're on the air, Steve. Yeah, um, thank you, Mr. Rabani, for your professional career and viewpoints. Uh, thank this you. This is such a huge subject. I, I won't give a history lesson it's not my hour. But while I'm encouraged by the current undergrad cohort's support of Palestinians, I believe it is due not to the thoughtful analysis of 20th century history, but rather online propaganda. How else to explain my young friend's shocking failure to connect the dots between the 7 October Hamas atrocity and the now ongoing idea of bloodbath in Gaza? Hello, the former did precede the latter. Nor do these youngsters know anything about the British and French mandates, the 67 conquests, and the cynical manipulation of the Palestinian refugee issue by Arab state actors. This ignorance has frayed my friendships. By the way, for many years I have labored on behalf of the Palestinian right to a homeland from here to the East Coast, and thank you. Well, sorry, uh, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead, Moeen. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure there was a question there, um, but... Um, he wasn't going to give a history lesson. I see. Well, he tried. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I can't speak on, on, on behalf of um, uh, U.S. university students or, or American youth. I'm, I'm very slightly older than they are. Um, but to the extent that I've monitored uh, their responses, I think... Um, these these are um, uh, young people who seem to be primarily motivated uh, by a sense of of, of principle, um, uh, by a sense of um, uh, revulsion at what they're seeing of an entire society being targeted and an entire territory um, being um, transformed into a killing field, and. Um, looking at it primarily from their perspective that their primary role is to influence the role of their own government in this conflict. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very easy um, uh, to focus and condemn uh, actors over which you have absolutely no influence and those which you aren't funding and those who you aren't su supplying with weapons to commit mass murder and so on. But I think... Um, these young people should be congratulated and saluted for seeking to take responsibility for the actions of their own government. Because after all, um, as we've discussed, the Biden administration is not supplying deep penetration bombs and white phosphorus bombs and, and all the rest of it to Hamas, supplying them to Israel. Let's go to the second caller we have waiting. Thomas, hi, you're on the air. Uh Fine. Thank you for the program. Uh, my question is, isn't this considered genocide by Israel, and hasn't it been going on for the last 75 years, and that basically Israel wants to get rid of all the, um, um, all of the 
people who um, uh, all of the people who are in their territory but are not Jewish, and I'll hang up and listen to your answer. And thank you for the program. Um, thank you. Um, the the issue of of genocide um, concerns a term that, unlike ethnic cleansing or or mass murder, has a very uh, specific definition under international law. And given my lack of training in, in that field, it's not one which I'm comfortable uh, pronouncing about. And it's one on which I prefer to defer to specialists in that field. And I will note um, that there have been um, several instances in recent decades where um, leading specialists in international law and in genocide studies have um, made that allegation against Israel and have insisted that it's a substantiated um, uh, accusation. Um, one can think, for example, of the Sabra Shatila massacres in Beirut's Palestinian refugee camps in uh, 1982. And most recently, we had the head of the New York office of the UN um, uh, Office uh, for um, High Commission for Human Rights, uh, Craig Mukhaibar, who, upon his resignation, released a letter in which he um, um, very insistently stated that what we are witnessing in the Gaza Strip now is uh, genocide. So I'm sorry for not giving a clearer answer, but um, given um, my very limited legal knowledge, I prefer to defer to specialists on this issue. And I think you will find quite a few who think that um, uh, this is a legal term that can be um, uh, substantiated. And I should just maybe one last point say, um, quite a few of these legal specialists are pointing out um, that genocide um, as defined by the Rome Statute that governs the International uh, Criminal Court involves um, not only the most extreme forms of mass extermination, as we saw, for example, during um, uh, the Nazi Holocaust, uh, during the Second World War, but also includes um, other phenomena such as um, intentional mass forcible displacement of, a, of an entire um, population. You know, we're, the, hour, the hour is clicking by. I have a whole sheaf of, of questions here that we'll never get to. But let's get this to a final caller. Um, uh, hi, Abu Ziyad, you're on the air. Hi, uh, great show. And uh, I am listening <laughs> and uh, learning quite a bit about... Uh, the event going in Gaza and uh, the occupied territory as well. Uh, first is a comment uh, about the U.S. role in this whole thing. Is It is analogous to the uh, role that Sharon played in Sabra and Shatila, making sure that you know they, uh, uh, they are getting the job done. And two, I have a, a question about... Uh, Hassan Nasrallah said he might be given a speech tomorrow. Do you have any idea about what he might be saying? And the third question is, uh, or rather the second question after that, <laughs> uh, okay. it has, a rela has a relation to the U.S. geopolitical uh, plan, uh, uh, as what they call about the uh, economic uh, corridor. Uh, uh, combating or rather, you know, challenging the Chinese uh, Belt and Road. Uh, thank, thank you, caller. Yeah. Um, so, on 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 your um, uh, second uh, question about um, uh, Hezbollah Secretary General Hassan Nasrallah's speech tomorrow, um, has he told me what he plans to say? Not yet. Um, so. I think um, we'll all have to uh, wait till um, uh, tomorrow morning to find um, to find out what he intends to say. I will say that I don't, you know, he has it has now been almost a month 
um, uh, since this crisis uh, erupted. The fact that he hasn't spoken until now is to me one more indication that um, uh, this was not coordinated with Hezbollah and that they were caught off guard on October 7th. I also can't imagine that he's going to give a major address tomorrow, which is so widely anticipated by Palestinians, by Israelis throughout the region, if not the world, simply to say um, that they don't intend to escalate um, uh, their involvement in response to uh, the Gaza killing fields. Will he give an ultimatum? Will he say that if uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken leaves Israel without uh, imposing a cessation of hostilities, it will become an open-ended conflict? Will he invoke uh, responsibility to protect? It's, uh, it's, it's very difficult, I think, to speculate at this point. We'll have to wait until tomorrow. Regarding your other question, um, I think what we're seeing now is the death throes of the so-called rules-based international order, which I think in Gaza has been exposed as, as such a meaningless uh, sham uh, that it will become in the future entirely impossible for Western politicians, whether US or European, um, to go to the global south, whether it's on issues like uh, Ukraine or others, and with a straight face, um, make the assertion that they're standing on principle rather than only the most um, uh, narrow uh, self-interest. We're getting short of time already, and I'd like to turn our attention to the function of Israel's media campaign, its portrayal of the Hamas offensive primarily as an attack on a civilian population. Talk about the function of such a portrayal, Israel's media strategy. Well, I let me preface my remarks by saying that obviously Israel isn't the only one um, with a media strategy. Hamas had a media strategy on October 7th and since then as well. Um, and the sense I'm getting is that Hamas's media strategy was primarily aimed at Palestinians, at Israelis, and at Arab and broader um, uh, Islamic uh, Muslim uh, public opinion. It was, it was not designed um, and not implemented um, to influence um, uh, public opinion and decision makers um, in, in the West in any way. Israel's, by contrast, is, I believe, to a very significant extent, focused on um, a desire to influence um, Western public opinion and Western decision makers. And if that's what you're doing, um, then of course the first thing you seek to do is to um, dehumanize and uh, delegitimize your enemies um, by basically placing what happened on October 7th, not in its regional and historical context, but by saying you know, that this should be seen as an extension of the Nazi Holocaust, that this is um, an organization that is indistinguishable from Al-Qaeda and, um, uh, and uh, ISIS. Um, uh, you know, basically, these people acted solely out of hatred um, uh, with the, the sole objective of, of massacring as many people as possible. And the available reports um, indicates um, that that is quite wide off the mark. The available evidence indicates that the primary objective of Hamas on October 7th was to demolish um, the Gaza division and to seize soldiers and officers from that division so that Israel would subsequently be um, uh, flying uh, blind. It's also quite clear um, that a large number of Israeli civilians were killed on October 7th. Um, was this part of a premeditated decision to massacre these people? Um, was it a more complex uh, set of factors um, which would involve a combination of people acting their own on their own initiative, of, um, in some instances, uh, 
premeditated killings and others of people dying in crossfire um, and others of Palestinian civilians coming through the barrier into Israel to extract uh, revenge on Israeli society. Um, I think those remain open questions that require uh, further examination and assessment, but it's quite clear that Israel would like us to believe that this had absolutely nothing to do with any military objective. Um, we need to understand what happened on October 7th in the context of ISIS and Auschwitz and nothing else. And this also, of course, um, helps them to legitimize their absolute refusal to make any distinction between the Palestinian people, Palestinian society, and um, armed Palestinian combatants in, in their um, uh, campaign against the Gaza Strip. I'm wondering, in our closing uh, minute, minutes here, I'm wondering if you, you might take a moment to address a seemingly obvious but rarely articulated mainstream double standard. That is namely the right to resist of armed res uh, the right to resi resist of armed resistance in regard to that of Ukraine and that of Palestine of opposing Russia's occupation of the former while supporting Israel in the case of the latter. Well, what we've seen very clearly is um, actions conducted by the Ukrainians um, in the defense of Ukrainian sovereignty against Russia are being celebrated throughout the West as, you know, heroic resistance to foreign aggression and so on. Um, while a right of self-defense for the Palestinian people has literally never been recognized on a single occasion um, since the British mandate over Palestine commenced in 1917. You go through the historical record, you will not find a single instance where a Western leader has stated that Palestinians have a right of self-defense. Not only that, um, Israel's attacks on the Palestinians are routinely um, uh, supported and justified uh, on the grounds that Israel does have a right uh, to self-defense, whereas in fact what Israel has been doing is exercising the right to colonize, the right to dispossess, and the right to occupy foreign territory. And something struck me in particular a few days ago where you had European politicians referring to settler attacks on Palestinian communities in the West Bank as terrorism. They, they referred to these attacks as terrorism and even then refused to acknowledge that Palestinians have a right to defend themselves against these attacks. In other words, um, in Western decision-making circles, Palestinians don't even have the right to oppose terrorism. Let's stay with that, that whole, the whole cauldron, really, of, of discussions around terror and terrorism. Um, talk about that a little bit, the, the way that it's, take it further, the way that it's utilized here uh, to define one and not the other. Well, again, I, you know, terrorism is, is, is a term which arguably has a technical meaning, which is, you know, the, 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 the use or threat of uh, violence um, against uh, civilian non-combatants in order to achieve a political objective. Um, that's fine so far as it goes, um, but it's become an entirely meaningless term um, when you apply that term to someone, not on the basis of their actions, but on the basis of whether you're aligned with them or, or you're opposed to them. And what we've seen in the Middle East is that um, Palestinians are systematically, routinely denounced and delegitimized as terrorists, you know, including 14-year-old kids throwing rocks at heavily armed soldiers. Um, and terrorism has, in fact, become defined by the ethnicity of an individual rather than their actions. In other words, a Palestinian who opposes Israel, regardless of how they oppose them, even if it's entirely peaceful, non-violent boycott of Israeli products is denounced as a terrorist. Um, an Israeli pilot can be dropping one-ton bombs on a very 
heavily, densely populated uh, refugee camp cause, causing hundreds of casualties and be um, uh, and, and never have to endure that characterization because, you know, they're supposedly engaging in a right of a legitimate right of uh, self-defense. You know, we have but a couple minutes left. One thing I, I wanted to get to and I, and I missed uh, is, is the whole issue of uh, expulsion, of depopulating Gaza and forcing uh, the population into uh, Sinai. Uh, earlier on, er, er, earlier on, of course, in your writings, you you dispensed with it. It seems to me that that it could could enter back into the equation. It could. Um, uh, you know, Israel has had an obsession with reducing the population of the Gaza Strip since the early 1950s. It has not wanted. Um, this large population of refugees um, sitting on its borders only miles away from their original homes. Um, uh, over, over the course of recent decades, um, uh, getting rid of Gaza's population, at least in bulk, uh, began to seem increasingly impractical. But I think in the context of what we're seeing now, and this also gets back to your earlier question about um, the media narrative, it all of a sudden came back on the agenda. And Israel, one of Israel's first objectives that it stated was, you know, we have to raise the Gaza Strip to the ground and we have to get rid of its uh, people, basically drive them into the desert in Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. And I have to say, um, this is a proposal that was quite enthusiastically embraced um, by U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. And in fact, on his first tour of the region, he sought to get Arab um, support for this um, uh, proposal, but it was dead on arrival. You've been listening to Muin Rabani. Uh, he's a Middle East commentator and analyst uh, these days, currently co-editor of the independent e-zine Jadalia, Produced by the Arab Studies Institute. Uh, that's Muin, M O U I N, Rabani, R A B B A N I. Track him down and see what he has to say. Uh, thank you very much, Muin Rabani. I want to thank Jade, our producer, Jack, our engineer. I want to thank our several callers. Uh, I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be with you next week. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thank you.